0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. All right, good morning, Seabreeze. I'm excited to be with you all this morning um, to finish out our series of messages called How to Bounce Back. And in this series, we've been looking at biblical practices that can help us bounce back. All of them start with the prefix re. These practices all have something in common. They all involve looking back at the past, and learning a new God-oriented perspective as we move into the future. And the practice we're looking at this morning is rejoice. How does rejoicing help us bounce back? Well, the Bible tells us that God is joyful, that God rejoices over his children, those who have put their faith and trust in him through Jesus Christ. So if God is joyful and you are God's adopted child, That means joy is part of your inheritance. It's your birthright as his adopted child. So that means joy is not something that you should settle for living without. And this morning, we're going to look at three people in the Bible to answer three questions. One, what does God say about joy in the Christian life? Two, what role does rejoicing play in bouncing back? And if you're feeling like your joy levels are depleted lately, how can you find more? But first, I tried to define what joy means in the life of a Christian, and I think it's something like this. Delight and satisfaction caused by understanding God's kindness and commitment. Delight and satisfaction caused by understanding God's kindness and commitment. It's because of who God is and how he relates to us that we can have joy and we should have joy. So if you want to grow in joy, this is where you aim. Knowing God, looking back at what he's done, how faithful he's been to you, this is the soil where joy grows. We're going to start with a scene from the life of Jesus and he's going to teach us that joy is essential. Joy is essential. The night before Jesus was arrested and crucified, He celebrated the Passover supper with his 12 disciples. And from the text, it looks like he spent the entire meal teaching. And we find these final lessons, this final teaching to his disciples in chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John. And just as a personal aside here, I think this is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. This is four chapters of unfiltered, uninterrupted teaching straight from Jesus, God in the flesh, to his disciples, his closest friends and followers. I mean, you could spend a lifetime studying just these four chapters. So Jesus knows that in a few hours after this dinner, he's going to endure a humiliating, excruciating public trial and execution, yet he spends his final hours teaching. Why? Well, he tells us in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And he doesn't stop there. In the next chapter, he's teaching his disciples about prayer. And he says this, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And if you go on and read these four chapters Uh, you'll see four other references to joy. Jesus seems almost preoccupied with joy. He folds joy into everything he teaches that night because Jesus knows what is ahead for the men in this room. He knows that fear and confusion they're going to experience when he dies on the cross. And of course, he also knows he'll be resurrected and he'll return to heaven. But after that, The men in this room with him have a long road ahead because after that, they'll start telling the world uh, to turn from sin and follow the risen Jesus. And when they do, they'll be persecuted, imprisoned, impoverished, and most of them killed because of it. And Jesus knew what his disciples would need most if they were going to bounce back and keep bouncing from the challenges and the opposition that lie ahead for them. And it's the same thing that all of us need in this room need 2,000 years later. According to John 15, 11, we need the word of God. That's what Jesus means when he said, these things I have spoken to you. He isn't just talking about these four chapters. He's talking about all of scripture. So why do we need God's word? Well, Jesus tells us so that we can have joy. And according to sixteen twenty four, we need to pray. Ask and you shall receive. That's probably a verse you've heard before, or at least that portion of it. But why do we need to pray? Again, Jesus tells us, so that we can have joy. And notice what he says in, in the verse from chapter 15, that my joy may be in you. This isn't just any joy. This is his joy coming into us. So what Jesus is speaking of is like a joy transfusion. It's his joy working his way into us, becoming our joy and keeping us alive. So we're sort of like joy anemics. Uh, Just like the body of an anemic person doesn't produce enough red blood cells, we can't produce in ourselves the joy we need to really thrive in life. So we supplement and we medicate as best we can just so that we can keep functioning. But every possession and accomplishment and experience eventually leaves us feeling depleted of joy. What we need is a joy transfusion, a transfusion of Christ's joy every day, and his joy becomes our joy. And these two verses can really change your perspective on the importance of spending time with God. Why is it important to study the Bible? Why is it important to pray? According to Jesus, you should study God's word and you should pray because they have the power to bring you joy that you can't find anywhere else. And sometimes we think of of prayer and Bible reading as obligations. These are things that Christians are just supposed to do, right? But Jesus turns that on its head. These are not obligations. These are sources of joy. These are lifelines. And that is why I believe that the most important thing you can do every day is carve out time to be with God, because according to Jesus, This is how you tap into his joy. The reason that Christ feels so strongly about the importance of joy in our lives is because of how important it was in his own life. So if I were to ask you all, why did Christ die on the cross? I'd probably get a few consistent answers, right? He died to save us. He died to defeat sin. He died because he loves us. He died to be obedient to his father. And all of those are completely true and beautiful, but the book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us insight into a reason that transcends all of those others. In chapter 12, verse 2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Of all the reasons we could think of that Christ suffered and died on the cross, who would have ever thought that he did it for joy, for his own joy? This is staggering. The death of Christ on the cross is the most self-sacrificial, self-denying act in history. And the Bible tells us that he did it for joy. It brought Jesus joy to save us. It brought him joy to defeat sin. It brought him joy to be obedient to his Father and fulfill his purpose. And Jesus offers us that same joy, a joy that transcends and empowers. It's a joy that transcends and empowers. It transcends because it floats above kind of the emotional swirl of our daily lives in this fallen world. And like God himself, it never changes and it's never diminished by anything we do. And it's a joy that empowers Because it gives us the strength to do what God has called us to do. There's a passage in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah you've probably heard before. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what this is talking about. It's your strength because it gives you the power to do things you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And it gives you the motivation to do things you wouldn't otherwise want to do. We get to see this play out for Jesus after the Passover dinner. He takes his disciples to a nearby garden to pray. And this is where we learn that Jesus was not feeling joyful about going to the cross. To the contrary, he's in agony. He was grieving the trial and the execution he's about to experience. So we see him on his knees, sweating blood as he begs God to take this cup from his hands. So why does he go through with it? Because it's what he was supposed to do? Because it was an obligation? Well, not according to this passage in Hebrews. According to this passage, he did it for joy. He was looking over the horizon to the joy promised by his Father. And that joy transcended the suffering and the shame that lie ahead. That joy empowered him to stand up and boldly fulfill his purpose, obeying his Father and enduring the cross. And he's offering us a daily transfusion of that same joy. So next, we're going to zoom in on the life of David to learn about rejoicing at our lowest. Rejoicing at our lowest. And how joy helps us bounce back. Of all the characters in the Bible, I don't think anyone bounces back more than David. I mean, his life is a roller coaster. He's overlooked, forgotten, betrayed, exiled, hunted. And yet, over and over again, he keeps bouncing back. So how does he do it? What we learn is that, like Jesus, David understands that joy is essential to the life of faith. Because joy has a unique role to play in the bounce-back process. Because joy isn't just an emotion, it's an orientation. Each one of us is orienting our lives towards some kind of joy. And it's often a misguided quest for joy that causes us to fall to begin with. So if we're going to bounce back, we need to aim at the right kind of joy. And the worst of David's many falls was the situation with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, because this was 100% David's own fault, his own sin. And you may know the story, but I'll give you the short version. David is alone on his roof one night, And he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on her roof nearby, summons her to his palace, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. But Bathsheba is married, and her husband Uriah is off fighting a battle with David's armies, which is where David should have been, by the way. So David goes into cover-up mode. He summons Uriah home from the battle, hoping to cover up his adultery. But Uriah refuses to leave his fellow soldiers. So David escalates the situation. He orders Uriah to the front line of the battle where he's killed almost immediately. David promptly marries Bathsheba, successfully covering up his adultery. And no one is the wiser, right? Well, except for God, of course. So God sends his prophet Nathan to expose David and confront him with the reality of his terrible sin. And this was catastrophic for David. There were consequences for him, for his family, for the entire nation of Israel, for generations to come. So how does David bounce back from this? Well, I want to be clear, that in some ways he doesn't. Even on his deathbed, David will still be dealing with the division and the conflict that rippled out from these terrible decisions. But he does bounce back where it matters most, in his relationship with God. And we know this because David wrote a song about it, Psalm 51. And as I read Psalm 51, be listening for what David is asking for from God. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. So what is David asking for in this, his lowest moment? Well, primarily he wants mercy and forgiveness, which makes sense, right? Given the terrible things he did. But then he asks for joy. Give me back my joy again. Let me rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why joy? David certainly doesn't deserve joy in this scenario. Yet David seems to see joy as part of the solution to bouncing back. So we're going to ask two questions. One, why joy? And two, what kind of joy? First, why joy? Joy was part of David's solution because joy was part of his problem. He got into this situation because he set his heart on a lesser joy. And lesser joy will lead us astray. Lesser joy will lead us astray. All of us are wired to pursue and prioritize whatever brings us joy, it just just comes natural. And it's not necessarily bad. It just depends on kind of how we set our course in whatever our personal quest for joy is. This is my son's compass. Okay, this belongs to my son Barrett and he wanted me to tell you that he wants it back because we're going to Zion next month. So make sure I get it back to him. And like all compasses, it's showing me where north is, right? And if I know which direction north is, I can get to my destination. But like all compasses, it's not pointing me towards true north, right? which is the North Pole. It's pointing me towards magnetic north, which hopefully I don't mess this up, is aligned with Earth's magnetic field and is constantly shifting further away from true north, the North Pole. In fact, now I believe it's about 300 miles. Magnetic north is about 300 miles away from the North Pole. So uh, this compass is fine as long as I'm not going very far but if I'm using it on a long journey or I'm trying to get somewhere really specific, at some point, I have to account for the fact that this thing is leading me in just slightly the wrong direction, right? And we all have an internal compass and our magnetic north is our desires, what we think will bring us joy. So every day as we make decisions and set priorities, we pull out our compass, you know, and we uh, decide what path is going to get me to my desires, to the things that will bring me joy. And we're all very good at finding ways to shift and orient our lives and the people around us to get to the things that we think will bring us joy. But the problem with our desires is, like magnetic north, they're not a fixed point. They're constantly shifting. And if you orient your life around them, eventually you will have problems. But when you become a follower of Christ, God starts to tinker with your internal compass. And over time, what he does is he exchanges magnetic north for true north. And true north is God's desires, what God says is most important, what God says is most valuable. And like true north, God's desires, his values are fixed. They're a fixed point. They never shift. They don't change over time which makes them a superior reference point for trying to orient your life. And only an internal compass set to this true north can find the greater joy that God offers. So when you decide to follow Christ, God invites you to reorient your quest for joy towards Him. He invites you to reorient your own personal quest for joy towards Him. And we can do this because the promise of God is that when we aim for what he desires and what he says is most valuable, he will supply a greater joy than we can hope to cobble together on our own personal quest for joy. Now, David sinned against God because he aimed for a lesser joy. And he was willing to violate God's moral standards to get there. And this is really the essence of sin, looking for joy from things lesser than God and apart from God, settling for lesser joy when God offers true joy. That's that's really what sin is all about. And on the roof that night, David settled for lesser joy, the lesser joy of quick sexual satisfaction, and then the lesser joy of feeling power over people that he could boss around. And then the lesser joy of feeling like he'd, he'd fooled everyone as he hid his sin. And his quest for lesser joy put him on a collision course with God. So when it all falls apart, what does David need? He needs to reorient towards true joy. And I have found this to be a very helpful way to fight sin in my own life. I'll give you an example. Here's a picture of my three kids. This is uh, Barrett, Shelby, and Sadie. And one sin that I struggle with, uh, I'll confess, is getting angry and frustrated with them at bedtime. Now my kids are amazing, but they have a lot of energy. Um, They're spirited. And getting all three kids to bed and to sleep at roughly the same time, that requires a lot of patience and grace every night. And some nights I just don't have it. So if they're especially wound up and I'm especially exhausted, well, I lose my cool. I raise my voice. I speak harshly. I'm just a jerk to my kids, to the kids God gave me. And that's sin. And as some of y'all know, my, my wife Laura and I are foster parents. We've been doing that for about a year. And as part of the application and approval process to become foster parents, a social worker sat down and interviewed our kids without us in the room. And this interview lasted almost three hours, so we're still not sure exactly what all was said. But at one point, the social worker asked my kids, does your dad ever yell at you? And they were all unanimous, only at bedtime. So, you know, if the government knows that, I figured my church should too, so... Um, I'm in a file somewhere. So in that situation, where is my quest for joy going astray? How am I aiming for lesser joy? Well, I think the answer to that lies in the fact that what happens as soon as my kids are asleep? B time starts, right? I can hang out with my wife, I can watch a movie, I can read a book. I, my, my day is over at that point and I can log off. So my quest for joy is aimed at plopping down into my chair as soon as possible to have me time. And if my kids block my quest for joy by being rowdy or not staying in bed or needing a fifth glass of water, um, I sin by relating to them in a way that doesn't obey or honor God. So every night at Tuck In, every night, I have a choice. Magnetic north, what I want. True north, what God wants. Will I aim for the lesser joy of landing in my lazy boy as soon as possible? Will I aim for the true joy of being a patient and gracious father in a way that honors God? I have that choice every night. So if you're struggling with sin, whatever it is, I would really encourage you to try looking at it through this lens. In that sin, where is your quest for joy going astray? How are you... Aiming for and settling for a lesser joy? And in your context, what would it look like to aim for true joy instead? Because in the moment, it's so much easier to choose the lesser joy because it feels like there's no reward for obeying God. It feels like short term pleasure versus just a long term slog of obedience. But that's not reality. The reality is that God always rewards faithfulness and obedience and he rewards it in the most valuable currency of all, the joy that can only come from knowing him and experiencing him. The second question we're going to ask is what kind of joy is David asking for? Well, he just tells us in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is what we're talking about this morning in a single verse. The joy of God's salvation, the joy of knowing God, of understanding what he did for us when he rescued us. So if you're a Christian, this is your spiritual home base. This is where we always need to return. So David is kind of like the prodigal son here, right? He, he went off on his own quest for joy, and it almost ruined him. So now he's turning back towards home. He realized life was always better when he was at home. So he's looking back and he's reminding himself of who God is, the God who saved him, the God who forgives and restores, and the God who meets us in our failures like he does for David. So Jesus taught us that joy is essential to the Christian life. David taught us that joy is crucial to bouncing back. But what if your joy is depleted? We can't just summon joy from thin air and feel joyful. How do we find it if we don't have it? To answer that, we're going to turn to Paul, who teaches us that joy grows in the gap. And I'll explain what that means. But Paul was a first century missionary and church planner, and he did not start out as a joyful guy. He started out on a mission to arrest and execute the first wave of Christians in the first century. And the Bible describes him as breathing threats and murder. But after a miraculous encounter with Jesus, Paul is reborn, he repents, he reconciles with the same Christian leaders he'd been trying to imprison, and instead of trying to shut down churches, he starts writing them letters to instruct them and encourage them. And in those letters, Paul talks about joy incessantly. In the 13 letters we have from Paul that are part of our Bible, he talks about joy 49 times. So how does Paul move from breathing murder to teaching joy in Christ? Well, in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, we get some insight into his thought process. This is how he starts out. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, And the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, that's bleak. Paul is painting a really bleak portrait of our lives without Christ. But at this point in the passage, he pivots. And as we finish the passage, listen for the joy in Paul's words. But God, being rich in mercy with joy. I mean, this isn't even one of the 49, but it just flows out of every word. This is a person who really understands what God has done for him. And the fruit of that understanding is this real tangible joy that just pours out of his words. So this is the bridge. If you've been at Seabreeze for a while, you've seen the bridge before. It's a diagram that shows how sin separates us from God. And notice that there's a gap between us and God, that is too wide for us to cross. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, gave his life to rescue us from this impossible gap. His sacrifice on the cross creates a bridge between us and God. And so far this year, we've been using the bridge a lot here at Seabreeze. The adults learned it uh, as a tool to help us explain and share our faith. And in the kids' building, we spent several weeks learning the bridge in the Sunday morning classes. And I love the bridge because it is the most beautiful and glorious truth in the universe, and you can draw it on a napkin. I mean, it's amazing. My five-year-old daughter, Sadie, can draw the bridge. It's great. But I want to focus on this part of the diagram, This, this gap, this separation between us and God. And the question I would ask is, how big is your gap? If you're a Christ follower, in particular, how far did God reach to rescue you? It might help if we tried to draw that diagram more to scale. Didn't know we could do that, did you? But um, This better reflects the reality of our situation because the gap is literally as wide as we could make it. That's as far as we could go. It's more like a chasm than a gap, isn't it? we this is accurate because we could not have been further from god and this is why paul is so joyful this is how he moved from breathing murder to breathing joy because paul understood this chasm that god carried him across and how far god reached to rescue him remember our definition of joy delight and satisfaction caused by understanding god's kindness and commitment our joy grows as we grow in understanding God's kindness in rescuing us from sin and carrying us across this chasm. And his commitment, because he wasn't just kind once. He's kind every day. His arm is still outstretched to carry us across this every day. So practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we grow in the knowledge and understanding of God's kindness and commitment? Well, remember what Jesus said? The words I have spoken to you. Ask and you shall receive. We need his words to us through scripture. We need our words to him through prayer. And don't get me wrong, it's certainly possible to read the Bible and not find joy. Uh, There's plenty of joyless Bible experts in the world. Uh, You probably met some in your life. So don't read the Bible just so you can know the Bible. Uh, Don't read the Bible just because it's what Christians are supposed to do. Read the Bible so that you can know God. Read it because Jesus offers you a reward of joy that only comes from knowing God and reading his word. So when you sit down in front of your Bible or your Bible app, if you prefer, you got to start by asking God for help. Ask him to help you know him. Ask him to help you find joy in his word. And if you start from that posture of humility and dependence reading the bible becomes a supernatural act god goes to work tinkering with your internal compass now most mornings when i wake up i feel like the gap is about this big just about this big i just need a little help from god mostly i'm okay just need a little help so my gap is about this big my joy is about this big too and in my experience they tend to go in direct proportion so, small gap small joy so every morning, what I need most is the truth. I need to look back and remember how infinite this and impossible this chasm was, how far God reached to rescue me. And look back on the kindness of God and ask, ask God to remind me of how faithful he's been. So that's our next step for the week. It's an easy one. Take just a few moments, sometime this week, to reflect on the reality of God's miraculous rescue. A few minutes alone to read the passage from Ephesians chapter 2 and thank God for reaching down to you at your lowest and carrying you across this chasm. And ask God to remind you of his faithfulness and ask him to restore the joy of his salvation. Let's pray. God, thank you that you, you are a God who wants to be known. Um, you want us to know you, you want us to love you, and you've given us your word so that we can know you, and you listen to us pray so that we can experience you. And God, this world just can be draining and depleting and exhausting, and we need your joy. And you offer that to us freely. uh, We will just turn to you and put our efforts into knowing you and finding joy in you. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that made that possible. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.